Welcome to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast of the Caspian Post with me, Mark Elliott. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today, Richard Girigossian's here with us. Uh, he's an Armenian-American analyst, um, contributors in numerous newspapers, periodicals, and so forth. Uh, he was born in Rhode Island and was a lecturer for the U.S. Army Special Forces uh, before moving to Armenia about 16 years ago. But he was also a staffer in Congress, which sounds very interesting, and now lives in Yerevan, where he runs the independent think tank uh, known as the Regional Studies Center. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Mark. Um, now, on this website, I mean, I, I've written a lot about Azerbaijan, and so perhaps unwittingly I tend to um, see things a little bit from the Azerbaijani perspective. So I'm very keen that um, we, we, we cover a little bit more how things look from the Armenian side. So you're in Yerevan, uh, but you're as a, an independent uh, analyst. Uh, how are things looking now, you know, uh, we were a year after the war. What was the public mood in, in Yerevan at the moment? Well, as you've correctly noted, we saw an unprecedented defeat by the Armenian side in a war in 2020 with Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. The defeat militarily was not only unprecedented, it was largely unexpected. Mm. After the war, which lasted a good 44 days, unfortunately, the most serious escalation in recent history, we saw Armenia facing a state of denial for a good six months before finally beginning to readjust to a new reality in the post-war context. What's most surprising, however, is the leadership of Armenia that came to power in a rare nonviolent revolution and ushered in democratic elections, was the first Armenian government to have lost a war over Nagorno-Karabakh, oh, yeah. yet was able to be re-elected and secured a majority in parliament in early elections in June 2021. This was a turning point in giving Armenia a rare commodity of legitimacy and a new opportunity for statesmanship, strategic vision. This is where we are now. Resumed diplomacy with Azerbaijan, opening normalization talks with neighboring Turkey, and I am in that context justifiably optimistic. Well, that's a great thing to hear. So would you say that the public mood is... Yeah, that, you know, because one tends to hear from opposition groups who are very noisy. Um, uh, but would you say that the silent majority, as we might call it, um, became less silent through the election? That there, there is a, a big feeling of a need for peace. Well, yes. In terms of there is no doubt of the necessity for peace and a return to diplomacy instead of force of arms. What's controversial is not the objective of peace, but the terms of the peace. And this is where the diplomatic process will determine how lasting and durable any eventual agreement becomes. Having said that, I do think conflict fatigue has set in in the region. And there is, for example, a new incentive of economics and trade, of turning a military defeat into a diplomatic victory as a win-win. Mm, 
you know, well, I mean, that's obviously what we would help. What we, we, we would, what we would like. Um, now, one of the things I'd like to know is if uh, you or indeed uh, anyone in Armenia was able to talk face to face with um, President Aliyev or, or the negotiators on the Azerbaijani side, what would you say is most lacking in the Azerbaijani approach thus far? Well, to be honest, what I have conveyed to the Azerbaijani side is the necessity and the urgency of fulfilling the terms of the fragile ceasefire that ended the war. Specifically, I'm talking about the continued detention in Azerbaijani captivity of a number of Armenian prisoners of war and detainees. This is a very emotional, urgent need for the Armenian side to be able to move beyond the conflict, the return of the human hostages from this war. Secondly, we see a notable commitment by both Armenia and Azerbaijan to return to diplomatic negotiations, which is welcome, as well as talks over providing road and railway access for Azerbaijan through Armenia. But in this context, context as well, there is incursions into Armenian territory and border clashes that actually poison the well of diplomacy. So to answer the question, the two immediate needs from the Armenian side is the full and complete return of all prisoners of war and detainees and an agreement to demarcate the new border rather than relying on uh, military clashes along the contested areas of the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, the, uh, in, in terms of the detainees, I mean, uh, presumably this is a well-publicized thing in Armenia. What sort of numbers are we talking about? And are they detainees from the time of the war or, or people that had crossed the border afterwards? Are they sort of accidental people? Because I know that some of the borderlines are ill-defined, which is part of the second point. Um, as, as it's seen in the... Because I, I haven't really got the insight of the Armenian press. Are, are these people who have sort of seen as unlucky people who just strayed across borderlines? Or is it a mixture? Who are these people and what sort of numbers are we talking? Well, to be clear, it's all of the above. In other words, there are both prisoners of war seized during the hostilities of 2020 and a second group after the ceasefire agreement that were captured by Azerbaijani forces and a third group of civilian non-combatants that have strayed in terms of shepherds, farmers. And what Azerbaijan is doing is, a, is using a transactional approach where these human hostages have become commodities in exchange for extraction of concessions from Armenia. So be it. We're down to about three dozen. But nevertheless, this is an urgent and immediate need for Armenia to be able to move beyond. There is hope, however, that Azerbaijan's recent release of batches of people timed with concessions will move quickly to resolve this issue. Mm, okay. Um, so you, you, because you, back in October, you had sound hope for um, for, for, for swift movement. I got the impression that there had been a bit of a setback when, when the anniversary for, for the end of the war came around. It, 
things didn't move quite as fast as we'd hoped. Um, would you say things are now gaining pace again? What, what, what's what's well, your gut feeling? On the one hand, what we see is since September, we see a notable concession by Azerbaijan returning to a peace process, returning to direct talks with the Armenian side, which is very welcome and commendable. At the same time, we also see uh, a degree of bold moves by Azerbaijan directed not against Armenia, but against Russia. What's most interesting is the Azerbaijani leadership is doing a very good job at calling the bluff of the Kremlin, of openly defying Russian expectations and the terms of the Russian-imposed ceasefire. So part of the geopolitical context is about Azerbaijan-Russia and not just Azerbaijan-Armenia or even the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, because much of the tensions and clashes have been bilateral in nature, have nothing to do with Nagorno-Karabakh and much more about Azerbaijan-Armenia relations. Mm, yeah. And uh, Russia, how much is Russia a fly in the ointment in the whole thing? I mean, I think I've heard you say, I might, I might, I might be mis mistaken here, but that, that to some extent, the end of the war appeared at least to be uh, a victory more for Russia than for Turkey, um, in, in that Russia was then able to insert itself. Are you suggesting that now things are slightly moving out of Russia's hands, or, or it's still no, very much a Russian game? Uh, just the opposite. In other words, if we take stock of the war, I would argue Russia is the only winner, specifically based on the fact that the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict was the only such conflict without a Russian military presence. This is no longer the case. Russia and only Russia ended the war with a unilateral deployment of its peacekeepers. This is a direct threat to Azerbaijani sovereignty and independence. At the same time, Turkey came away from the war despite unprecedented support for Azerbaijan with much less than expected in the post-war reality. Azerbaijan as well, despite the seeming victory in the war, it was very much an incomplete victory where Nagorno-Karabakh remains populated and protected by Armenians with Russian assistance and Russian peacekeepers. So the real fly in the ointment, if you will, is Nagorno-Karabakh is far from resolved, hence the need for diplomacy. And this is an example of a projection of Russian power and influence. And I do think it's a shared threat for Armenia. The over-dependence on Russia as well is a, is a challenge just as Armenian sovereignty and independence is also being mortgaged. Mm. Well, and I know when you look at the politics in Georgia, the vast majority of Georgian uh, political voices seem to be anti-Russian. And uh, But I think also, to some extent, that has also been why Russia tends to want to sideline Georgia. And, I, I, you know, as we've, we've seen, part of Russia's uh, attempt to encourage Armenia to reopen the border with Turkey might actually be a way of sidelining Georgia. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of interested whether you can speak on those issues, but also um, the, the degree to which in Armenia people have pro or anti-Russian sentiments. You know, again, what's the feeling there? Let's take the first question. 
in terms of looking at Russia, all Russia's plans and projects for the restoration of trade and transport, including Armenia-Turkey normalization, centers on a strategic objective in Moscow to marginalize and isolate Georgia. And it is a challenge to regional integrity. In terms of Armenia domestically, there is generally a hesitant recognition of the fact that it's Russia and only Russia that counts in terms of ensuring post-war stability. Even the most pro-Western Armenians have to admit the reliance on Russian peacekeepers for the security and safety of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. Having said that, there is also profound awareness in Armenia of the weakness of Russia and its security organization, the CSTO, as well as a belated admission that Russia poses a unique challenge to Armenia. It's a challenge of an unpredictable so-called ally. Mm -hmm. Unlike Azerbaijan and Turkey, which is much more predictable, it's Russia that's the wild card for Armenian security. Interesting, yeah. And so, so but so, yes, it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, when we talk to um, the ex-Georgian uh, foreign minister, he, he said that years ago he had hoped and to push for uh, a kind of a Caucasian, a loose Caucasian union, something along the lines of the Benelux. Um, do you think that if Russian um, influence was less strong, that this would be a realistic goal in the in the medium to longer term? Obviously, short term, it would look preposterous. But uh, is that something that could be worked towards? Is it even something ever discussed? Yes, and let me explain. Earlier attempts by Georgia in terms of mediating or facilitating such a return to the regional complex have been premature. Generally, a good idea, but far from the reality. Mm. Having said that, in this post-war environment, there are two significant observations. One is Russia has an accidental convergence of interests with the West in the objective of post-war stability to prevent a renewed war over Nagorno-Karabakh. And in this context, we need to bring in Russia as a stakeholder. And with the new incentive of economics and trade, we can make this work. The reason is much less examples from Europe. It's not France and Germany post-war, coal and steel but it's much more a regional reintegration of trade and transport to promote interdependence, because it's interdependence that will be key to restore the missing ingredient, deterrence. Mm. We need to regain deterrence to prevent renewed hostilities from all sides. And economic interdependence and trade is the most logical way forward. And in this context, I think Russia is working from a position of weakness, not strength, of coercion over the seduction of the European model. And in many ways, it's Russia that's become overextended. And the future of the region 
is much more about Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia finding a common future together, and much less about external imposed agendas from Moscow or even from Turkey. Well, optimists like myself have the great dream that once the borders open and given a little time, organically, there will be a lot of trade across the borders. Um, and that, as you say, that this will create a, a, a you know, a, a much greater sense of togetherness and so and, and foster peace. Um, is that a naive view? I mean, when you actually, I mean, having actually traveled, for example, along the, the, the Turkish-Armenian border, I mean, you've been to Ani, I've been to Ani, the, the, the sort of destroyed Armenian city. And, and it was only when I got there, I realized just how sparsely populated those areas were. It then made me slightly question whether I'm maybe over-egging that. Maybe, maybe the, the, there isn't the populations that close to one another. Or, or, or is it, in fact, more optimistic than I thought? You know, just talk me through that, that sort of thought, if you could. Well, I share your optimism, but it's also grounded in concrete analysis. In other words, it's the economics and the trade opportunities especially because of the timing. What we often forget is we share a common enemy, the pandemic of COVID-19 and the variants. The timing is essential because we are soon facing the economic challenge of recovery from COVID-19, the adjustment of new global and regional supply chains, Hence, the importance of opening the border between Armenia and Turkey. And I do think that psychologically, the imperative is to build a new future rather than continuing to be a prisoner of the past. And the opportunity is the advantage Armenia has. With a second back-to-back -back free and fair election, there's a rare degree of legitimacy in Armenia where Armenia has survived the test. And stability in Armenia is much on firmer ground than all of its neighbors, from Turkey to Azerbaijan, and even more stable than Georgia democratically. And in this context, we can remake the map, especially from an Armenian perspective. Armenians, if nothing else, is a nation of survivors. Yeah, that's and for sure. this is a new second chance um, and that, so another important factor, obviously, is that Armenia has a very strong diaspora, very supportive diaspora. But again, I, I don't know a great deal about it, but seen from the outside, it does occasionally sound like the, the diaspora are perhaps more maximalist in their sort of putting the territorial gains or, uh, or wanting to regain areas of Karabakh or something like that, rather than peace. Is this, is this just the voices I happen to have come across? Is there actually a, a strong force for peace amongst the diaspora? Or is there a, a greater sense in which the diaspora uh, want to sort out um, territorial uh, status and so forth for Karabakh before doing anything more? Sorry, that was a very well, long-winded question. I, I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> I do. But in a natural context, that's normal in terms of the very core identity of the Armenian diaspora around the world, which is a product of the Armenian genocide, is very much rooted in genocide recognition, defending Armenia, and adopting what you said was a hard line or nationalist narrative. Armenia, on the other hand, 
is governed by a state-centric approach. For example, there is controversy and divide between the diaspora and the country of, of Armenia over normalizing relations with Turkey. For example, normalization with Turkey is not reconciliation. And that's where the genocide recognition must come in. Rather, Armenia is approaching Turkey to normalize relations as the basic minimum to provide the first step in the eventual rapprochement and reconciliation. Having said that, as someone who chose to move to Armenia some 17 years ago from the diaspora, I do think as a more democratic, economically developing country of Armenia, will emerge as the center of gravity for much of the diaspora, which didn't have that kind of relationship before because previous corrupt Armenian governments were overly authoritarian. And there is an opportunity to build bridges here. Mm -hmm. Well, in your TED talk, I'm not sure how long ago it was, but it was wonderful. You did the ABCDE of forward thinking, and I thought it was a lovely talk. Um, and one Thank of the you. things you said, the, the D in that was for the need for more diversity uh, in Armenia, at which not just Armenia, but you were talking specifically to an Armenian audience. Um, how do you think Armenia can develop that greater diversity? And I think you meant it in terms of both ideas as well as, you know, not, not so much necessarily the ethnic version. Well, I'm glad we have a chance to re-examine this issue because, first of all, it's very much my American approach. The lack of diversity in an overly homogeneous country like Armenia is negative. It tends to promote intolerance. And we do need both greater, let's say, diversity of opinion and thought in terms of elevating the level of political discourse, and we still have much to see and much to do in that regard, but diversity or the lack of diversity will also be addressed by reopening closed borders, by establishing trade relations in this new post-war environment. And I do think there is only one place for Armenia to go, and it's up in terms of progress. And my eternal optimism is perhaps justified optimism in this regard. But yes, diversity of opinion as well as composition is essential in terms of what kind of Armenia are we going to see in the future. More democratic, yes, but also more developing as a stable island of stability and democracy in this region at risk. Well, that's, a, again, very encouraging. But one of the things, just going back to, we, we touched on it a little earlier, but how, how can we get, um, particularly across the Azerbaijan-Armenian uh, divide, I mean, where, where there has in the past been that diversity and the, and the countries, you, the, the peoples used to, um, you know, live happily together, uh, how can we go back to a situation where the two sides or the people, not the sides, but the people of both communities start to listen to each other. Do we have, do you have any actual strategies that might help to encourage that um, greater communication? Well, the short answer in the medium term is we cannot go back. Rather, we can forge a new post-war relationship. The first step here is 
not necessarily Armenians and Azerbaijanis listening to each other, because what's required before that is Armenians and Azerbaijanis being able to talk to one another. Yes. In other words, it is an indictment of the current reality where North and South Korea have more contacts and connections than Armenia and Azerbaijan. And I do uh, lay some of the blame on the nature of leadership in Azerbaijan. It's a Shakespearean challenge of father to son dynastic rule of a family that has governed Azerbaijan for over a, over a quarter of a century, finding common ground in that environment within Azerbaijan is difficult. Hence, the return to diplomacy is the answer, a focus on practical confidence-building measures and people-to-people -people contact. But we're at the very early stage, which also offers a unique advantage in that the starting point is not zero. The starting point is actually negative, meaning that Every step and any step that we take now is a demonstration of progress in moving forward. And there's little danger of retreat into the wartime conflict. I do think there's only one way out of this, and it's looking at the region together. Well, I, I completely agree with you. But do you have any, you know, as you say, just getting people to talk, do you have any particularly ideas or strategies that, that might actually kickstart that at a ground roots level? Well, yes, it's already started. To be honest, for example, one of Armenia's concessions was allowing air traffic and air connections from Turkey to Azerbaijan to pass through Armenian airspace, as well as flights from Baku to the exclave of Nakhichevan through Armenian airspace. This is a prelude to a coming agreement on giving Azerbaijan road and railway connections to Nakhichevan through southern Armenia. This is more than interdependence. This is about opening uh, the closed borders. And in this way, we're taking lessons from the progress in Armenia-Turkey normalization, where after many years of civil society cooperation, the border has not yet reopened between Armenia and Turkey, but many minds have reopened within Turkey and Armenia. And in that context, this is why dialogue and diplomacy are the only way to resolve this. Well, um, so I'm just just to, the last little bit. I I'm also interested because you, as a, an analyst, cover the whole of the, the region, um, and I know there's there's a large Armenian diaspora also in Iran. Um, to what extent um, is Iran a player in in this whole game, or or are they somewhat sidelined? Well, Iran is a historical player. In other words, much of this region, the South Caucasus has been an arena for competition as much as cooperation between three larger regional powers, Russia, Turkey, and Iran. That historical role has been secondary for Iran in recent years. Iran is not ready to return to the region as a player, largely because it's overwhelmingly looking to the West 
for an easing of sanctions mm. over negotiations for a new nuclear deal. That's a much bigger prize for, for Iran than this small region. So I think Iran has largely chosen to step back um, and is looking elsewhere. That distraction, however, may be an advantage where once we have sufficient progress in the region, then Iran can return and benefit in terms of the dividends. And from an Armenian and even Azerbaijani perspective, the fact that this is not a trilateral competition helps us. It's an advantage because the nature of the problems and the conflicts require a local solution. They cannot be externally resolved or imposed, not from Iran, nor even from Brussels. Wonderful. Now, I, I did want to ask you about Kazakhstan and, and Armenia being like, at least uh, chairing the CSTO at the moment. That's kind of an interesting question, but I'm, I'm just slightly worried that we're on the edge of time. And I did want to just ask you about your meeting with Anthony Bourdain um, when he was in up because, you know, because one of the things, you know, we, we, we talk as, you know, uh, geopolitically, but, you know, the, your the experience um, on the more human level, I mean, that must be great fun, sort of talking. And, and what was he like? I mean, it was just last one of his last... Um, programs before he died, as I understand it. Well, Anthony Bourdain's visit was not only uh, a, a benefit for many of us. Uh, on a personal level, uh, having mutual friends in New York, it was also an opportunity to see him. And I do think his visit was most important to demonstrate the human aspect of these countries, of this of this region. In other words, this is not just and only about geopolitics or conflict. The human dimension is often neglected. Bourdain was able to illustrate and illuminate the humanity in all of us. And I think that's so important. I mean, as a travel writer, it's the key thing. And what I mean, one of the things I think you, you'll find, the more you travel, is just how people are just lovely pretty much wherever you go. And the problem so often is the dehumanizing it through thinking of bigger concepts and nationalities, borders and all this stuff. But I think that that's a, a message I'd love people to get is that if we knew each other, <laughs> we'd like each other <laughs> almost it's inevitably. Universal. The universality um, of it, of course. And anyway, so I, I just like to thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. You've been listening, ladies and gentlemen, to the Caspian podcast, and I hope you'll join us again very soon. Thank you, Richard, and once again. Thank you.